In his 2003 book on the fall, Mick Middles asked Marky Smith if he thought that people take the fall too seriously. I've always wanted my work to be taken seriously, because it deserves to be, he replied. But no, I can't stand when people go too far. I just think it's pathetic. The only reason I agreed to be part of this book is because I know you won't troll from release to release in train spotter fashion. That'd be so dull. Welcome to the 15th episode of Temporary Fandoms, the podcast where we troll from release to release in train spotter fashion. But do our utmost never to be dull. I mean, there's no point trying to please that cantankerous get Marky Smith, is there? And in this episode, we'll finally be listening to the band that started it all. The Mighty Fall. As usual, we'll take you through their discography, record by record, and then join together for a free-ranging roundtable discussion to try and work out what it is that makes Fall fans so obsessive, and perhaps to help you and understand why Marky Smith's belligerence doesn't put us off completely. You can find this podcast in all the usual places, including our home on Beat Rehab, that's beat.rehab slash tempfans, and in our new home at tempfans.com, which is still pretty basic, but we hope to develop it over time. Either way, look out for the Spotify playlist edit that cuts the show together with the music for the best listening experience. Before we begin, a little temporary fandom's history. In 2014, the journalist Mark Burroughs published an article in The Guardian in which he wrote about the experience of listening to 30 fall albums in 30 days, and how he went from dimly aware to fully-fledged fan in the space of a few weeks. Early the following year, a few friends and I, a mixture of fans and the merely curious, decided to undertake the same journey, using a Facebook group to post and discuss the daily records. The experience seemed pretty special, and not long after we'd finished, we tried it out with a few other bands. Sonic Youth, The Smiths, David Bowie. By early 2016, we'd gained some momentum, and we'd gradually accrued an unruly mob of listeners, many of whom had never met in real life. This was no longer a friends and family affair. This was a thing, and it needed a name. Temporary Fandoms was born. It took another five years for us to make the leap to the podcast format, but now we're finally here, and you might be forgiven for asking why it's taken us so long to get round to the fall. Well, the truth is, I wanted to figure out how to do this thing properly first. I'll let you be the judge of whether we achieve that, so relax as we join some very special guests to take you on a journey through the wonderful and frightening discography of the fall. Welcome to Temporary Fandoms, and this is episode 15, which I believe I got right. My name is Ewan. I'm Nick. I, I thought he was going to forget that, to be honest. Uh, we haven't done that in a few, in a few episodes, so. <laughs> uh, and this is a big one. Um, Nick has basically talked about this in the preamble, but Nick, why is this the big one? Um, because the fall is kind of where Temporary Fandoms started. Uh, it's because we decided to listen to all the records by the fall that we ended up becoming a group that listens to complete discographies. Um, and we've done the, the fall today is the only band we've done twice in the Facebook group uh, because we did it again in 2017 when Marky Smith died. Um, and I, I joined the Facebook group not long after that. Um, and so these three, these pods are actually the first time I've listened to all the fall albums um, for various reasons, which we'll come into later on in the, in the episodes. Um, Couple of bits of administration. Um, obviously, 
listen to us on Spotify, listen to us wherever you get your pods. Um, on Spotify, there is also the playlist where there will be selected tunes to listen to with the podcast cut into that. Um, previously, our last two episodes started to drift towards the two-hour mark. So we're going to release more episodes, but shorter episodes now. So expect to have the full for about six weeks. Um, that could be good for you. That might not. That's up to you. Um, if you like us, please like us. Um, we're currently spending money to do this. Uh, it would be great if either you could go to buy me a coffee slash temp fans. Links are all in the thing and throw us three quid if you fancy it. Um, if not, please just leave us an Apple review somewhere. That's really, really handy. And then maybe other people will start listening to us. Regardless, we're going to carry on doing this anyway because we're suckers for punishment. So we've got some special guests and some returning guests who are also special as well as my, Nick and myself. Um, first of all, we've got John Henderson. Um, John, you are the owner of Tiny Global Productions. Tiny Global. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> owner, the guy that the guy that runs it, and the owner. And you are going to be doing which albums for us in this I'm episode? Going to be doing Live at the Witch Trials. Dragnet, Grotesque After the Gram, and the mini-album Slates. Fantastic. Um, also joining us is Drummer of the Nightingales. If you haven't watched the recent documentary, it really was pretty awesome, even though I was drunk and fell asleep and had to wake up again and watch it in the morning. Um, Fliss Kitson. Hey, Fliss. Hello. How are you? <laughs> it was a Friday night. I, I, I realised it was on. I was halfway through a bottle of wine, and then I was oh, they're brilliant. And then I woke up and went... I'll watch it tomorrow. Um, Fliss, you are joining us, um, obviously, for a couple of episodes. Um, which album or albums are you doing in this one? I'm doing Hex Induction Hour in this one. Perfect. And obviously, there'll be more from you in the next episode. And rejoining us is the man that makes all our music happen, uh, all of our themes and all of our stings. It's John Fisher, who you last heard as part of Bowie, when we gave him 90s Bowie to tell everybody how good it was. Uh, hey, Jay Fish, how are you? Hey, I'm very good, thank you. How's it going? And you're doing nothing on the first episode, so I will come back to you in the next episode and ask you which albums you're going to be introducing on that. I mean, obviously, when I say nothing, you're going to be in the round table, but there will be no introductions from you. And also we have Nick, who is doing one, I yeah, think. Yeah, the song album this one, it'll be Room to Live. 1982. Perfect. Um, so obviously the next voice you're going to hear after the next bit of music will be John Henderson, who will be taking you through the early stages of the four. Um, please go off, listen to the playlist or pause us, stop us, go and find the music on Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube or your record collection or whatever and join us on this. And we'll be back in a bit. Hi there, this is John Henderson, and I'm going to introduce The Falls Live at the Witch Trials, their debut album from March of 1979. Prior to the album, the band had released an EP called Bingo Masters Breakout, best known today for one of its two B-sides called Repetition, and another single, It's the New Thing, likewise known for its B-side various times. Today, The Fall has its uh, mighty place in the pantheon of alternative music, but when the album was released, it got uh, middling reviews. Some people loved it, some people hated it, quite a lot of people didn't understand it at all, 
And for that, uh, I think you have to look at it in context. The uh, Falls album actually came out before a lot of the debut albums from people that were around in the early days of punk, like Vic Goddard's Subway Sect, The Slits, The Raincoats, The Pop Group, Gang of Four, The Cure. So there wasn't quite the template for understanding this new and revolutionary music at the time. The second factor is that the album itself despite being a really big favorite of mine and, and actually one of the first two records I ever bought, it doesn't sound really great. Part of that's down to the fact that singer Marquis Smith was ill during the sessions. They only had five days booked and depending on who you ask, they only ended up being able to use one or two of those. Consequently, there are very odd things with the production and the sound. Carl Burns allegedly spent most of the down days just working on his drum sound. Being a big R-A-W-K rock guy, his ideal sound was something like what you'd hear on a Rush record, not on a low-budget, post-punk indie label. To add a little context and some information that isn't discussed very often about this record, I want to point out that original bass player Tony Friel and original keyboard player Una Baines, who had also been Mark's girlfriend, both left before the recording of this album. Despite that, most of the material on the album dates back from, from their time. Uh, I think Tony Friel gets two co-writes and Una Baines gets one co-write on this record, which means absolutely nothing in the fall because the people who wrote the songs rarely got the credit they deserved. Sometimes people who didn't write the songs got a lot of credit, but they weren't on the record. And by the time they went into the studio, this new version of the band with Mark Riley playing bass instead of Tony Friel, and with Yvonne Paulette playing keyboards instead of Una Baines, they'd written a whole new set of music. They, most of the band seemed to want to record. Mark, however, decided, let's record all the old stuff and get it out of the way, which would have been great because they could have followed this up with a new album, except pretty much the band started to splinter at this point. Martin left. He was the uh, last original Fall member to leave, except for Mark, of course. Um, Mark Riley switched to guitar. Yvonne left after another single. Uh, Carl Burns left, and the band becomes quite a different thing in many ways, which we'll pick up on next with Dragnet. Welcome back, this is John Henderson, and I'm going to discuss a little bit about Dragnet, the second fall album released in October 1979, which, if you're paying attention, is only six months after Live at the Witch Trials, a really short amount of time for any band, but in this case, it's a very short gap when you consider the fact that the people that played on Live at the Witch Trials had all departed by the time of Dragnet, with the exception of Marky Smith, who was the Falls leader, and Mark Riley, who changed from being the band's bass player to being the band's first guitarist and occasionally filling in on keyboards. Everyone else is gone, uh, including especially Martin Brahma, who, with the exception of Mark, was the last original member to leave. So they brought in a couple of friends of Mark Riley's from a band called Staff Nine. Staff Nine used to open for the fall. A couple of the guys would roadie for the fall. And uh, uh, Craig Scanlon became the second guitarist and Steve Hanley from Staff Nine became the bass player. They also brought in a new drummer, Mike Lee, best described as a right-wing leaning rockabilly cabaret drummer. You can hear a little bit of that on a track like Fiery Jack. Uh, Mike wasn't the best drummer in the world by any stretch of the imagination, but he does add a certain je ne sais quoi to the proceedings, and uh, he only lasted for this one record, so he wasn't in the band for very long. Aside from Mike, this was largely the band that, that lasted, I think, through the Falls Peak period, about up to Perverted by Language, which uh, others will get to. 
Dragnet is an incredibly ramshackle record. It's uh, very lo-fi, uh, some say intentionally. There's actually a lot of controversy within the band about it, or I should say from former band members. Martin didn't get uh, any credit on the record. Of course, he didn't play on the record, though he claims, and this is bolstered by uh, Mark Riley as well, that he did write or co-write some of at least about five songs on the record. Uh, some of the songs were taken from Staff Nine and reworked with different lyrics. One of them is uh, Chalk Stock, which was known as Pop Stickers before. And to give you another example, there's the song Before the Moon Falls. This was a song with lyrics from Mark and music from Martin, but the band broke up before they recorded it, or at least that version of the band broke up. So Martin kept the music and turned it into Work, the second Blue Orchid single, with entirely new lyrics. Mark kept the words and had the band write a new tune for it. That became Before the Moon Falls. And there are a lot of stories like that in Dragnet, which we can get into in the conversation. It's kind of interesting stuff, though, because the album was very much uh, a hybrid of the past and the present and where it might go in the future. The album certainly had its fans. It had certain detractors. Uh, even among people who liked The Fall Before thought this was sort of a letdown, probably in part because of the production quality. I remember uh, being a really young kid in Chicago going to uh, outlet record stores and seeing 10 or 20 copies of this in Live at the Wish Trials selling for a dollar, uh, sitting there for quite a long time. It, it took a while for the band and these records to, to attain the reputation they have now. I will say this about this record though, and that is it really marks the point at which Mark's lyrics become very unique. Uh, you could say that about certain songs on Life at the Witch Trials, but here you have him sort of telling ghost stories and odd elliptical things with unclear meanings. Life at the Witch Trials lyrically was much more straightforward than this. I think this record forced him to think on his own since he was no longer relying on people who were like peers. And you'll see a lot better where this takes him over the next couple of records. Hi, it's John Henderson here again, this time to introduce you to the third full-length studio album from the fall, Grotesque After the Gram. Uh, this came out in November of 1980, more than a year after Dragnet. In that time between, there were a couple singles and there was uh, a live album with a couple of demos appended called Total's Turns. All of that stuff is really worth checking out, but none of the Fall's work up to this point really comes close to this. This is just a fantastic record. The band is really tight and well rehearsed. There's a lot of energy where it might have been lacking before. It just sounds entirely organic in a way. There's nothing quite like it. Well, maybe there is now, but at the time there was definitely nothing like it. And uh, a lot of chances are taken on this record, both uh, musically, there's some strange sound experiments, um, one or two attempts at something like a pop song, but it doesn't come off like that at all. There are a lot of lengthy pieces with brilliant music, kind of hypnotic, simplistic music, but really fantastic tunes that uh, seem to serve Mark's lyrics better than anything had before. On some of those songs, like CNCS Smithering or the NWRA, which is uh, The North Will Rise Again, the music exists largely to deliver a short story for Marky e. Smith, which would sound odious coming from a lot of other bands, a lot of other musicians, but man oh man does this work. This is also the record, if you're a Pavement fan, Pavement pretty much based their entire career around in one way or another. 
And if you are a Pavement fan and you're hearing this record for the first time, you'll probably be shocked at how obvious some of the lifts are. I won't get into any of the songs or anything like that here because uh, it, it's all worth the discussion. And this may be the shortest of the four intros I'm doing, but in some ways, this is really where to begin with the fall. And this is really what the fall were all about at their peak. It's no secret that Mark did not treat himself very well. He was uh, obviously an alcoholic, uh, a really inveterate cigarette smoker, used a lot of drugs that were really damaging to his body and I think his mind. And at some point it's clear he just couldn't function anything like he, he did at his peak. It's a tragic tale and if this discussion on the fall gets to that point, it'll be pretty obvious that things changed at a certain point and they never really got back to what they could have been. But this is a fall full of promise and ideas and ingenuity and uh, they really went places for quite a few years after this. I think it's largely due to this record and the next couple of records. And so this is a really wonderful place to start if you're a novice to the fall. And it's really a record that will live with you for a very long time. It's, there's a lot going on. It's really deep. Uh, it can be perceived in different ways. And there are a lot of ideas in the songs that take quite a while to work their way into your head and for you to work them out. It's just a very challenging and excellent work. It's accessible at the same time in a perverse kind of way and a whole lot of fun. So this is one I highly recommend. Hi again, this is John Henderson, here now to introduce you to Slates, which breaks the rules a little bit because it's not actually an album. It was originally a 10 inch with six songs on it. And as much as I raved about the last one, Grotesque After the Gram, this to me is the absolute peak of the fall. I, I don't think they came close to it again. Um, it was a slow rise to this point, but it really paid off. And I think this is a pretty much fearless, peerless and flawless record. And what I'm learning about these introductions is they tend to be shorter the more I like the record. So this one might be really short. In any case, Slates was released in April of 1981, about six months after Grotesque After the Gram. It wasn't intended to be an EP originally. It was intended to be a seven inch 45 or a double seven inch. The history on this is kind of unclear. Somehow it expanded to a 10 inch record. There are um, a variety of different producers on it. Jeff Travis and Grant Showbiz who worked on a lot of Rough Trade stuff. The Fall, uh, Adrian Sherwood mixed a track or two. And um, I think what's interesting about this record is that the band took all the ideas that they had on Grotesque after the Gram, and it seems almost like they ran them through a blender and a more unique fall sound came out of it. This is something that you can't really break down into parts like you could to some extent on Grotesque after the Gram. It just sounds like an entirely unique band with an entirely unique sound. It works and they do introduce an element into their sound which is almost like a form of psychedelia in a sense. These songs are really trippy, at least some of them are. Uh, the best ones I think uh, on the album are Leave the Capital and uh, An Older Lover, etc., which are the first fall songs that kind of take you somewhere in a very, I don't want to say hippie sense, but in a psychedelic sense where you're not listening to a song and just digging it for what it is, but they really get into a groove on these songs. Uh, production is top notch. Mark Riley's at his absolute peak. And I don't think that they were ever quite as concise as this before, though the next record, Hex Induction Hour, is mighty fine. But uh, this is the crowning moment, I believe, 
I should mention that the best way to buy this record is actually as a CD because they include a bunch of bonus tracks and it, it sort of works out to a longer time. And it's all really, really worthy stuff. Grotesque After the Gram, Slates, and Hex Induction Hour, that's peak fall. I'm going to editorialize a little bit now because I can. The next two records they released after Hex Induction Hour were Room to Live and Perverted by Language. Around that time the band was collapsing, I think those records uh, lose a lot, but they did kind of rebound in a way when they signed to Vegas Banquet uh, with a string of records, the first three of which are pretty good. It's a very different band, it's a sort of bubblegum pop garagey version of The Fall. Uh, there was a novelty element to it that I don't think they ever had before. And if you find these records, the ones that I've talked about, kind of heavy going, you might want to jump up to those, but I would definitely stick around for Hex Induction Hour, and I'm sure The Room to Live and Perverted by Language Introductions are going to be full of interesting facts, and those are really interesting records to get into, particularly if you've enjoyed these, or if you really want to see a band go from that stage to something utterly different by the time of the Baker's Banquet. So I hope you'll stick with these introductions, because the entirety of the Falls career, uh, it's got its peaks and valleys, but it's always really interesting. Everybody who loves the fall tends to have a slightly different period that they consider the peak. And that's one of the really fantastic things about the band. And I think if this batch of records didn't meet your expectations, stick around because the band does change and it does go different places. And a lot of those places are worthy. And I know that the next uh, introductory hosts are going to have some interesting things to say as well. So thank you for listening. I suppose I said yes to doing this podcast mainly to break that cliche that all fall fans are boarding men and the judgment I sometimes get of um, getting into a band later in life. There can be a lot of pretense and snobbery of people who become fans of bands later in life and secondhand, especially a band as prolific with such a huge fandom as The Fall. I wasn't even born when this album came out that I'm going to talk about, but it was actually seeing them live for the first time without ever paying attention to their music before, which led me back and back to Hex Induction Hour. What a record and what a wake up call as a musician hearing this, a very welcome one. And I'm certainly not an expert on this band or this album, but a nice change perhaps for someone with fresher ears and a bit more new to it to give their opinions. I don't know, you tell me. Um, but Hex was the first album by The Four to have the two drummer lineup, and as a Glitter Band fan myself, I had that immediate connection. It's an album full of unusual compositions and the mood shifts throughout where the band sound like they're really following their instincts and it's extremely raw sounding. It kicks off with such a great song, the classical, which sounds like one massive outro to me absolutely storming i love the unison drum rolls and it's very much sounds like it was recorded in a room which it was in a cinema in hitchin then there's songs like jawbone and air rifle which has a super catchy sing-along little chorus um and after a really angular intro there's great garage riffs with Dwayne eddy style guitars lifting and disappearing at the end such as on fortress and deer park there's Hit Priest, which is the most dynamic song and, and it's improvisation, I believe, but sound certainly sounds like that. And I think they're reflecting can with that, probably. 
Also, maybe a nod to Cannes again after their decision to record in an old cinema. Um, it's super spacious, that song. A lot of the songs are anchored by the repetitive bass, which gives the guitarist room to improvise and go off on one, experiment with going out of time and clashing against the key, which was really influential to a lot of bands. Um, I think Step Sideways is actually my favourite track on the album. It's the top riffs and drum sounding belting and almost like Northern Soul. And then the, the end song and this day, it really reminded me of my drumming style when I first heard this track. It's galloping, random, plenty of cowbell. And like a drum kit is being thrown down the stairs. Fan bloody tastic. Sounds a bit like how can we make this album up to 60 minutes and it goes on maybe a little bit longer than it should do. Although reading Paul Handley's book, it actually went on even longer. So yeah, I don't know. But this album closes one chapter of the group. They believed it was their last album. They would have gone out with an absolute bang, but obviously we we're glad that they continued. It's a really dense sound and a proper experience to listen to this album in full. You go through something listening. You have to be ready to dedicate an hour of your life to it, really. It's certainly not background music. It demands your full attention. It's my favourite bar slates and a huge inspiration. And as Ted Chippington would say, true greatness, this one. Hey, lazy journalists with snide high turnover crack, 1982's Room to Live has the same lineup as on the previous album. Admittedly, things are about to change, but this classic era full lineup have been entertaining you now for a few albums with only minor changes. Mind you, that's a fairly oversimplistic view of what actually happened. Stories abound of Smith excluding band members from studio sessions, or, as drummer Paul Hanley put it, it was a fucking nightmare. You'd turn up and find Smith had only invited half the band and brought in other musicians without telling anyone. Sadly, Mark Riley is also on his way out and does not appear on all tracks on the album. It was Riley who brought in his friends Steve Hanley and Craig Scanlon, so I can imagine there was a lot of awkwardness around this firing. As ever, Scanlon and Hanley staggered on by keeping their heads down, but in his excellent memoir The Big Midweek, Hanley does talk about the feeling that Room to Live was a pointlessly rushed album, released within months of Hex Induction Hour. Apparently, they'd initially gone into the studio to record a single, but Smith insisted they keep going, even though they had nothing prepared. Having just produced an album many regarded as their masterpiece, I can understand this impulse to want to keep recording, the sense that you're at the top of your game and you need to capture as much of the magic as possible before it passes. Nevertheless, it seems safe to say most of the band did not feel great about the experience. So what did Smith's headlong rush to follow Hex yield? Whilst it lacks Hex's cohesiveness, Marky Smith proves himself still to be at the top of his game. The title alludes to Hitler's policy of Lebensraum that drove the expansionist plans to conquer Europe. Perhaps another instance of that uncomfortable flirtation with Nazi imagery prevalent among bands in the 70s, from Bowie to Joy Division. But the choice of title is as oblique as most of the Falls releases. Marky Cha Cha is a reworking of Lord Haw Haw, the British Nazi propagandist William Joyce, but one can't help but notice that the choice of honorific also alludes to Smith's own name, Marquis. The song is reputed to be about the Falklands, but as with most songs by The Fall, this is by no means obvious. 
Elsewhere, there are songs about the Pope's first visit to the UK in centuries, and the experience of recording for the BBC with the solicitor in the studio. Hanley's bleak view of how it was made belies the strong performances by whoever was admitted to the sessions on any given day, but it lacks any of the real standout tracks that mark other albums from the same period. So, a lesser album for sure, but still full of peak era goodness. Riley's fall from grace is usually put down to his ambition. He had a vision for the band, and it wasn't Smith's. Ironically, given his reasons for leaving, his exit ushered in precisely the change the band needed in order to become more accessible to a wider audience. Hello there, welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. Um, hopefully you have been listening to a significantly large amount of fall and uh, you're still with us and joining us on this journey. Um, still with us, we have John Henderson. Hey, John. Hi. Uh, Fliss Kitson. Hey, Fliss. Hello. Uh, Jonathan Fisher. Hey, Hi John. There. And obviously Nick and myself. You're right, Nick. Yeah, not bad. Okay, right, so actually. we're going to start. With, yeah, Nick, this is like Nick's Christmas. <laughs> uh, I mean, he has been building up. If you, a regular listeners will know that there have been lots of references to the fall coming, and lots of references to how unhappy I may be to that happening. But I'm sort of resigned to it now, and I've been listening to some fall records for the first time in my life. So hopefully, I liked them more than I liked Can. Anyway, um, we're going to start. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. right. I've, right. Already, I've already got. I've already got incredulous looks. Fantastic. So we're going to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fliss, if you want to know my opinions about Can, uh, I go on a bit of a five-minute rant about Tago Mago uh, in a couple of episodes ago. So we can find that for you, and we can play it to you to you later. Um, we're going to start. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going to start with Live at the Witch Trials, 1979. I'm going to come over to you, John. Um, Am I right in thinking there was an EP before the album? There was uh, an EP and then there was a seven inch single. Yeah. I mean, I, I know there's various uh, comments about how the production was a bit weird and maybe Marty Smith was a bit ill. It feels very ramshackle. Um, and obviously for, there's a lot of energy with that. Um, do you think, does anybody know whether, was this how they wanted it to sound or was this a, it's good enough? I don't really think it was how all of them wanted it to sound. And I mentioned in the, the intro that Carl, Carl Burns, the drummer, uh, spent a lot of time while Mark was ill and they, they couldn't record in the studio, just getting his drum to sound kind of his fantasy version of what drums should sound like. And it didn't necessarily suit the rest of the band. And of course they had to record it. I mean, it's not a live album, but they had to almost record it live because they only had one or two days in the studio to do the whole album. Okay, um, sound amazing though on Live at the Witch Trials. Well, the drums sound amazing because they spent you know three days in the studio recording them, or, or well, yeah, yeah. three days in the studio miking them and setting yeah. up the sound, and then two days for everyone else. Um, one of my favorite, sorry, it's no, one no, of my favorite, go. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about that whole album is the drums. Like Carl yeah. Burns is amazing, nice? so good, and yeah, I'm grateful that he spent all that time being nerdy about it. I certainly don't spend any time being nerdy about my drum kit and I think I maybe should. <laughs> um, I'm, I, I've already decided before this, I'm not going to ask who was which musician in which album because I lost track 
doing any form of research for this. Um, when there's a new drummer or a new bassist or a new guitarist, I'm expecting Nick to tell me or for somebody else to say there's been a change. I'm just assuming there's a different lineup in every album, apart from Bricks who turns up for a bit and then she's around for a bit and then Mark Riley's around for a bit. Um, so John, was, was this the first album you heard? This was the first album I heard by them and I bought it uh, when it came out in America with a slightly different track listing. Um, okay. They, they took off two songs and they added uh, various times, which was the B-side of the single that preceded it. And um, this and the Slits Cut, those, they were actually the first two records I ever bought with my own money. Wow. So there you That's go. much cooler than most people's. <laughs> I mean, mine is not. My, my, the first record I bought with my own money was Musical Youth. That's not bad. That's not bad. <laughs> I can handle some. Um, mine, was, mine was Sly Fox, Let's Go All The Way. Oh yeah. Which I was very happy with when I, when I, <laughs> did, when I worked it out. That was, I went to Woolworths uh, and bought a seven inch single in Wolverhampton City, city Centre. Um, so Fliss, obviously, as you've just said, Joe, you think the drums are amazing. And as a drummer, um, music, music wise, musicianship, what do you think this, uh, this album does? Um, I think it's quite primitive, but I think a lot of The Fall is primitive, actually, with kind of intelligent lyrics and um, hooks, a lot of hooks. And I guess it's kind of the beginning of the repetitiveness, which just carried out throughout their career, um, which is probably, I mean, is that what post-punk is? Is that what post-punk means the repetitiveness they they start that i mean that's certainly a theme that carries on throughout all of the albums isn't it well i mean, the, I mean yeah the, the whole repetition 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 thing I, I, as a brief aside while i was listening to all the, while i was listening to all the albums for for this and the next episodes the whole repetition thing was actually great because very early on in a song i knew if i was going to like it because whatever <laughs> i was listening to was just going to repeat because uh, it'll be the same <laughs> six minutes later Exactly. exactly. Very handy. Um, Joe uh, jo Fish, um, how is this one for you? I know that you're a big full fan. You've you know you've listened to it more um, multiple times. Where, where's this one fit for you? Yeah, I, I love this stuff. I love the the early one. This um, the, all the early ones really. I think I did hear this. I suppose I got into the fall in the late eighties, and I heard this in the early nineties. I suppose so. It was one of the early ones I got into. And yeah. I love it. I love the punk element of this one, the kind of underground um, underground medicine sort of thing of it. Those kind of the more punky bits, I think, are really good in this. It's, I suppose it, it, it could be a bit standard punk, maybe, but I still like that about this record. Makes it poppy, in a way. Yeah, I guess. Um, I mean, I didn't know what I was going to be listening to. I expected it would be punk and post-punk, and post-punk was... If, I, if I'm honest, it's, it's one of those sort of the genres that sometimes leaves me a, a, a bit cold. Um, but what was the reception to this when it came out? I mean, did it break them into a stratosphere, John? Or was, was there a whole sort of meh from the new Musical Express, etc.? No, it was, um, it was received indifferently, I, I would say. Some people really loved it. Some people really hated it. It did manage to get an American release, which at the time was a pretty big deal. Um, if you look at bigger bands like Susie and the Banshees or The Damned or X-Ray Specs from just before then, none of those had American records out at really ever until many years later when CDs came about. 
So for the fall to, to have a major label distributed album at that point was really unusual, um, but it didn't sell at all. And for a long time, you could find copies of it for a dollar in the shop. It's brand new. Wow. And um, the, the second record didn't get picked up. So I wouldn't say that they did real well in America. In, in the UK, they had their fan base, mm -hmm. uh, but they were one of the first post-punk bands really to put a record out. So they did get some attention because of that, but they also got some curious stares because of that. I think a lot of people didn't quite know what this was. It wasn't really punk. The band itself was really influenced by a lot of American garage bands from the 60s. They really loved the Seeds, Question Mark and Mysterians and things like that. And so it didn't quite have its place yet. And I think the first album is a different band than, than what followed, to be honest. Okay, uh, for me, it was, uh, it was more garagey than I expected. Okay, so Live the Witch Trials came out. Who were their peers? I mean, did they have peers? Was uh, there anybody the they have were... peers? The peer the fall, alternative TV um, would have been peers. Um, uh -huh. Mark Perry from Alternative TV actually ran Step Forward, the label that put out the album. Okay. And there were a lot of similarities between the two of them. That would be the mm -hmm. obvious one, I would say. Wasn't it, um, was it the manager of the Buzzcocks at the time who funded their first single? Is that, is that right? That, that was Richard Boone who managed the uh -huh. Buzzcocks, uh, later was the, the label director for Rough Trade during a really big, uh, you know, big streak for them. Uh, he had a label, New Hormones, mm -hmm. uh, and um, they put out a bunch of things, most of which didn't quite take off. Dislocation Dance, Ludus, some Pete, Pete uh, Shelley side project things. Uh, and he didn't have money to press the fall single. Right. The EP, actually. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so unless anyone's, thinking, anyone's got anything pressing to say about Live at the Witch Tiles, I'm going to move on to Dragnet, which came out, what, six months after their first album? Yep. Um, yeah. And also had, for me, Unexpected Cowbell, <laughs> which I really did not see coming. So, so what was the difference? I mean... For me, the first one I, I got to quite like. I really struggled with Dragnet, but maybe I need a few more listens. But mm -hmm. in terms of how the record was put together, um, what headspace were the band in? Was it the same lineup from the first one? What was going on? Um, John, start with you and then sort of move around. Um, it was almost an entirely different lineup. Mark, Marky Smith stayed he, and he was the fall. And Mark Riley went from being the bass player to the guitarist. The rest of the band was brand new. and. Some of the songs were songs uh, Martin Brahma had co-written that didn't get recorded uh, earlier. And Staff Nine, which is a band that opened for the fall, they threw in a bunch of songs uh, because two of their members did become new members. The Cowbell uh, would have been a guy Mike, named uh, Mike Lee, who's a really strange older character. Yeah, uh, the great really story. didn't fit in the band. I don't think he understood it at all. Uh -huh. But um, he's responsible for a lot of the strange sounds on that record. He was like a rockabilly drummer, no? He kind of, he kind of wore the suits and everything, which is just hard to picture with the. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what they call those. Um, yeah. Bolo ties, you know, like they wear in like the, a teddy boy the, thing. Southwestern, yeah, and, and teddy boy stuff, and he was really into it. And he wasn't, he wasn't really a great drummer. He didn't last real long in the fall. Um, and, but yeah, that, that that album has a lot of him on it. Doesn't sound like any other fall record. So, so how did he end up in the fall? I don't know how anyone ends up in the fall, Ewan. Doesn't um, everybody end up in the fall? 
<laughs> it, it, it's probably something like Mark Smith ran into him at the chip shop and he needed a drummer. I mean, yeah. almost literally, that's how it, things like that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so Fliss, um, how did this one stand for you? I mean, obviously, you mentioned the drumming. How you love the drumming in the first album. Um, where was your entry point for the fall? Actually, where did you come into? What was the first one you listened to? Do you know what it's? I'm going to be totally honest because that's what I'm here for. Absolutely. Um, I actually got into the fall first from being really fascinated by the fandom mm -hmm. because I had joined the Nightingales actually I hadn't joined it was years before that but I had was friends with the Nightingales and discovered the fall fandom they were all talking about it the drummer of the Nightingales at the time Darren was obsessed with the fall as was everyone around me at that time and I spent so much time like trawling through that fall forum, not even knowing anything really about the music, but just obsessed with kind of watching this fan group talk and row and be so intense. And it was weird. I thought it was weird. Um, and that was before I'd even really delved into the music because I kind of was put off by that a little bit, if I'm honest, um, just from, you know, the intensity of it. But then I was like, well, I kind of need to know why these guys are all kind of so into this. And then I saw them live and loved it, was very influenced by it musically, um, found a lot of what how I played as well as a musician was very similar in ways, um, which was great because I never heard of it before. So it was just another inspiration and then I went back to Hex straight away and I've got to be honest I actually have never got on with Dragnet I okay. I am a full fan I'd say but I'm not an obsessive fan at all and if I listen to it once I, I'm not going to listen to it again and I haven't really listened to Dragnet again. I'm really okay. glad you said that my notes were I sort of struggled to get through this and as it was the second album I started to feel a bit of dread about what was to come uh whew, those were my notes <laughs> i yeah okay. i really 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 struggled with this one i i wow. didn't know which direction the band were going to go after the first one and i don't know there was nothing that sort of kept me kept me happy kept me clinging to it i guess um john it's a very dark and dense record and um i think it's the only fall record that you could really describe best as transitional mm. um they became something much more powerful shortly thereafter this. Uh, but yeah, the production was horrible. There wasn't really a sense that they knew what they were trying to achieve as an album. So it's all over the place. And, and uh, after a while, I've come to love it. And I think fans have come to love it. But unlike the first one, this one did not get much in the way of positive press, except for a few real de you know, devoted fanatics. Do you think it was a case of like the, the archetypal difficult second album? It's well, the first one's come out, let's get another one out. And often bands spend so long putting the first one together that the second one is not necessarily, you know, fully formed. It's funny that you say that actually, Yun, because it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> the, the the first album really consisted of very early fall songs that they had just waited to record a long time. When they went in to record live at the Witch Trials, there was a big battle between Mark and Martin, 
who were really at that point the co-leaders of the band because Martin wanted to record this new album that they had. Mark was, said, let's get the old stuff out of the way. And that's what ended up happening because Kay Carroll, who was the manager, was also Mark's partner at that time. And you know, it's kind of two against one. Um, when they went in to record the second one, the question was, what do we do with all this late period first lineup fall material? And they pilfered about half the songs on the record from that. But those were songs that Martin wrote and the new people hadn't really played on them or performed them. If they had been done as fall songs when Martin was in the band or as Blue Orchid songs, and one of them was, it would have been a different story. And the rest were uh, basically songs taken from Staff Nine who were a bunch of teenagers that you know came up with some good tunes, but they were hugely fall inspired. So what you have on the second album is largely a band of fall fans trying to sound like what they thought the fall should sound like. Wow, so is that the first case of there being a fall covers band, essentially, or a tribute act, <laughs> but the tribute act was the fall and by the second album? Yeah, I think, I think largely so. Um, Mark hadn't really become the, the great lyricist that he did shortly thereafter. And the band were just, you know, Mark Riley had changed to guitar, so he wasn't used to that. They lost their keyboard player who'd been a big part of the early fall sound. Uh, and they, they were just young guys. And I think that they weren't quite the capable musicians that, that they became. A guy like Steve Hanley might be, I don't know about this for sure, but he might be the person in, who lasted longer in the fall than any other member except for yeah, Mark I think pretty sure that would be him. Yeah. I mean, I, I love this album, um, but having been through the whole discography a couple of times, I, I noticed that, yeah, there seems to be a lot of people were, Dragnet didn't seem to be that into it. But um, for a long time, I had like these first three albums on cassette and didn't really know the order of them. It was like those pre-internet times when you just had records, but didn't really know where they came from, if you know what I mean. So they all kind of blended together for me. I didn't really differentiate them very much, but there's so many of those lovely little fall details on there, like the, the bit in Your Heart Out, where uh, Marky Smith stops to say, well, here's a joke to cheer you up. And then <laughs> I just love stuff like that. I mean, and then the joke's nothing, it's just nonsense. It's, but you know, like Ian Curtis never stopped to tell a joke in the middle of a song. Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I've got a thought in my head I'm going to try and get rid of. Um, Jay Fisher. <laughs> um, so how about you? Where, where does this sit with you? I mean, if it's a difficult album for a lot of people to get into, um, how do you find it? Yeah, I suppose I'm, I'm with everyone else on this. It's, it's not quite as good as uh, the first one for me, but I, I still really love it. And, um, Psychic Dance Hall is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, Inspector versus Rector, yeah, I think is an incredible thing. And and stands up with anything actually. It's, it, it, it stands apart from anything on those first two albums actually, Spectre versus Rector. Sheer craziness of that sound. I think that's, that's wonderful, that one. Um, for me, there was a sort of, there was a, maybe it's because I was picturing it in my head. There was a sort of an image of, oh, they're recording it in the studio and Marky Smith just sort of walking around deciding when the song will finish. Um, some songs seem to be a sort of, yeah, yeah, I can just picture someone walking around going, yeah, they're going to carry on, we're going to carry on, done. Uh, John, you're waving a your hand. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that Martin was a more sort of, uh, I don't want to say formulaic, but he wrote songs that that had a more standard format. Mm -hmm. And you're probably right about him waving his hands and, and, and all that on there. Um, oh, I also wanted to mention one thing, which I think it was Nick who said something about, you know, you didn't see Ian Curtis make a joke. And just as a point of trivia, 
the fall and joy division shared the same rehearsal space yes. and if you've ever seen the video for level terrace apart where they're mm -hmm. in this big rehearsal room they go through the brick door it's sort of the the main video for level terrace apart that's actually where both bands recorded and uh they had alternate days it just looks like a big derelict building doesn't it in that video it kind of was yeah yeah um, okay, so we're going to move on to grotesque parentheses after the gram, close parentheses. Um, so this was what, 1980. Um, is it worth asking about the lineup? Or am I just going to, let's just assume the lineup is, is relatively changing unless there's a I major change. Probably pretty much the same, no, John? It's, it's the same. Apart from the drummer. Apart Aside from, from the, the drummer. drummer, yeah, right. Sorry, Nick. Uh, okay, so let's, let's, I'm going to fly this one, I'm going to fly straight to Fliss for the first time. Uh, for the first one. Um, Fliss, where does this sit with you? I mean, if Dragnet was a bit more listened to it once, ah, can't quite get back to it. How about this, how about this one, the follow-up? Yeah, I think this they're back on their game on this album. It's really good. I think it's full of quite a lot of hit songs. Um, I don't know loads about it, again, either. Like, you guys are more of the fact people in this. Tell us about the feels. Oh, Tell us about the feels. Yeah. Um... But it, honestly, it has been a while since I've listened to this one, um, but it's got Totally Wired on it, hasn't it? Actually, um, I think that was a single. Uh, oh, was it? The thing with The Fall is, is like alongside all these albums, and we're going through it album by album, yeah. we're actually missing so many great songs by just doing the albums because they did so many extra singles that just didn't come out on any albums. But obviously later on, when you had the CD reissues, they always... I think it was on the reissue then, yeah, because yeah, so, I'm obviously a reissue gal here. So. Yeah, and so um, Totally Wide and How I Wrote Elastic Man, I think, are yeah. both appended yeah. to the end of the CD Ooh, reissues. But they're, they're classic songs. Wouldn't like them to be missed. But then this, yeah. was, this was sort of the case with a lot of bands. I mean, even you go as far back as the Beatles, you could easily pluck five or six of the Beatles' biggest, most famous songs that don't exist on a single album. Mm -hmm. And then that's sort of... Through the 80s, early 90s, there were a lot of bands. Um, I mean, I'm going to reference the bands that I grew up listening to, like the Wonder Stuff and Pop Will Eat Itself, who had singles that didn't exist on albums. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. sort of died a little bit now. But yeah, no, that, that's def definitely a, a thing. So, um, so John, going to, going to go back over to you. What was going on in their lives at the moment I mean, when they were making this one? Well, you know, since we're kind of at the early point of the fall, the one point I'd like to make is uh, if you... They change labels many times. And if you go through those labels, typically you could make a fairly good argument that their best record for any given label was the first record for that label. So here, they've. Uh, I think that part of the renewal of the band was they left Step Forward, which was falling apart. They signed with Rough Trade, which at the time was like a really hot label if you were into a very esoteric kind of you know new things. And um, Jeff Travis, who owned Rough Trade, was one of the co-producers on the album, along with Mayo Thompson from the Red Crayola, who also worked for Rough Trade. And uh, I think that they gave it a lot of focus. I think the fall felt like they had something to prove. And uh, the band had been playing together for a long time. I should mention an interesting fact about the lineup change is that the new drummer was Paul Hanley, Steve's brother. And they'd played together a lot. So they already had that synchronicity. So he wasn't so much like a new member, but kind of a half new member, if you will. Yeah. Is it just Paul on this one? So it's it's not until the this next one. album that we have Paul and Carl Burns together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So was so was Marky e. Smith becoming because obviously Marky e. Smith has the persona as well as the artist. And was he becoming the persona 
by this point? Was, you know, was he becoming bigger than himself as, as a singer or was he still just Marky Smith, lead singer of the fall? No, I think that uh, you hit upon a really important fact that drives the rest of the fall. Uh, when Mark started going out with Kay Carroll, the manager, Kay was notorious for being such a hard ass on every level. And there's actually a videotape of her on, uh, she's, she's passed away recently as well, but there's videotape on YouTube of her, video on YouTube, uh, where she's just railing some promoter at trying to garner like a bigger guarantee. And the promoter's like, we'll give you 200 pounds. And she's like, 1200, you goddamn motherfucker, da, 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 da. And just going <laughs> on and on. And she got away with it a lot of the time. And she really was a firm believer that Mark was a genius. And Martin Brahmas told me, and I think it's probably pretty true that Mark sort of sat there silently watching what Kay did and eventually started kind of taking those bits from personality until he was the undisputed leader wow. of the fall. So, so Kay Carroll was the proto Marquis Smith. Huh? Kay Carroll was the proto Marquis Smith. She was <laughs> the proto Marquis Smith. I think that's very true. And by the time of grotesque, uh, I think he'd reached a point where he was undisputably the leader. No one was going to ever challenge it again, but he wasn't so solid in his ego about it that he, I mean, it's, this is much more of a band record than anything they really did afterwards. So it was a nice balance between his really intense ego and the rest of the band's own input. Mm -hmm. It started to fall apart not terribly long after this. I think you can really, really hear the difference on this one. It, it feels like the first proper classic full album to me, this one. It feels very singular. Things like New Face in Hell are just, are just amazing, mm. I think, on this one. Um, I want to say the cover's really good as well, because I love the cover. It's grotesque. Is this a Mark's I love sister the cover? It's a great cover. It's Mark's sister, I think, who did drew that, yeah. Yeah. And she does some oh, others yeah. as well. A uh, quick question, uh, John Fisher. Um, from Manchester, Marky Smith from Manchester, Faller from Manchester. Is there a is there a thing of, or your Manchester adjacent? If I've <laughs> if I've got it slightly wrong, uh, but is there a thing of ownership of bands from where you're from? There are certain bands I gave a, I got obsessed by because they were from down the road. Um, was the Fall one of those for you? Yeah, I suppose. I suppose that's true. But I, when I got into music, most of the bands were from Manchester. Just strange. Oh, such a Manchester thing to say. Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> it was like the Fall, the Smiths, um, all that stuff. New Order, Joy Division. But I didn't think that it was all from Manchester. It, it never occurred to me at the time. Looking back, it's like yeah, everything yeah. was, and I just thought everyone just liked everything from their city. I didn't, it didn't occur to me that that was special. I just thought you liked what your city did, which is strange. <laughs> but I mean, I was like 13, 14. You don't really think about this shit, do you? Yeah. 13, 14. No, I, 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 God, what, I was listening to Assault with a Deadly Pepper when I was 13 and 14, and they definitely didn't come from Wolverhampton. Um, okay, so we've gone through <laughs> the early Mark One. We've gone through the first few albums, but we're going to squeeze in an EP, uh, which is Slates, which was a year later. I've listened to this probably more times than I've listened to anything else over the last few weeks, mainly because it was exactly the amount of time from leaving work, going to the supermarket and getting home. Um, I actually, this, this is the first time I started to really like what I was listening to. Yay. Although, although I will say that with a caveat, um, 
every time I was listening to it, I'd get halfway through Older Lover and go, oh, God, this is annoying me. For a band that's had several, multiple EPs and multiple albums, why is this EP special? Why are we doing this EP, John? I think because it's the best fall record, just full stop. They were uh, even tighter than they were on Grotesque. I think the songs were amazing. And they started to create a, a really different atmosphere in the studio. Like they really took advantage of the atmosphere. It wasn't a, just a really good band playing in a studio, but they were experimenting with things. Adrian Sherwood uh, mixed a song or two on the EP, uh, giving it a different feel. And Mark's lyrics start to disintegrate a little bit. There were a lot of story songs on Grotesque and here it's much more impressionistic. It just all came together really beautifully. Uh, I think this through the next one, which we'll talk about, but this was their best record in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, before we did this, Nick did say one of the things he likes about the four is that everybody who's a Fall fan has a different opinion over what their best record is. Nick, is this your best record? Um, well, the thing is, I usually say that my favorite Fall album is usually the one I'm listening to at the moment. Because if you, you know, when I'm listening to Live at the Witch Trials, that's my favorite Fall record. Um, and even with Dragnet, probably the, while I'm listening to it, that's my favorite Fall record. Usually if asked, though, I, I have a different one that I default to and it's, it's a, a little bit later. So uh, we'll come back to that. But, but Slates is a pretty special record. And that's why, even though it's an EP, it's the only EP I decided we had to include in this in the full sort of studio album discography, because it, it just it feels like an important record in the in the kind of full canon. Um, so who who else was who was doing stuff in 1981 around that time? Because obviously, you know, punk has sort of been and sort of gone. Post-punk was sort of, I mean, who were there? I'm going to use the word peers again, but basically who else was releasing stuff that could be comparable? Comparable, I think this is when you start to see bands that uh, filled a similar spot. I think the Nightingales would be a really good point. We've got Fliss here. Um, but, you know, Killing Joke was really getting huge in a way. It was a, it was a weird moment because a lot of the original punk followers who became musicians in post-punk bands, at this point, things were starting to get so vast. It, it exploded mm. in so many directions. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it was just a couple of years after this that you had things like Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which yeah. was, you know, consisted of people that kind of grew up with punk. Uh, on the other hand, you had, you know, just all these odd little bands. Uh, Public Image started doing the double drum thing on Flowers of Romance around this time. Uh, the Cure were picking up steam. And it's really hard to say. I think you saw a really inventive group of people go in so many directions that it becomes impossible to follow. Okay. Um, and on that, um, because obviously there were so many different flavors, subgenres of post-punk and that went in various different ways. Um, Fliss, what, what was your um, alternative music in your formative years? Just so I know where you're coming from. Like, I, was, I, I was a Grebo kid from the Midlands. John, if you need to look it up, basically greasy kids from Wolverhampton who, who liked guitar slash skate stuff. Um, Fliss, what was yours? Oh, well, I was a massive, that was probably, if you're going alternative as in rock alternative, but I was Riot Girl through and through mm -hmm. from 90, yeah, 98 onwards. I was probably started listening to that. Yeah, I wasn't born when these albums that we're talking about came out, but that doesn't mean I can't go back oh, and listen I to them. I was sick. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, and it was... Yeah, it was female fronted. Oh, that's not a genre, but you know, 
the the right girl scene was okay. my thing. And so when you've gone, when you've moved, obviously as we all have, when you go, you've moved back in through history, find going through the various genres that influenced who influenced who influenced what you like now. Um, whereabouts in the punk and post monk did you post monk post punk did you gravitate towards? Where did I gravitate towards uh, the fall or just post punk in general? Yeah, just yeah, post punk in general. You know what? I find the post punk thing quite strange because the Nightingales, I don't want to talk about us loads, but um, we always get put in that bracket. I mean, it was literally post punk, yes, but I feel it's more of an attitude, it's not a sound of music I mean I think the repetitive thing is quite um common but I find it more of a punk attitude that represents that kind of era of music I was really into Gang of Four and Wire I went back to that quite early um and yeah everyone was kind of into the fall when I was listening to that so and that's how i was led to it. I think I had about three friends who were into the fall, but they were also the same three friends that would go on about how great Bill Hicks was and that nobody else was as good as Bill Hicks. So I probably had an issue with them at, as well at the time. Um, I'm not going to ask real- you, you probably Bill Hicks is just, because that's a tangent I don't want to go down. <laughs> but, uh, no, no, it's not so much Bill Hicks. It was a certain type of person who would go on about Bill Hicks. Right. And it was also and, the same. And, and a certain type of person who likes the fall. Is this, is this where we're going, Ewan? No, I just said that three of my friends. <laughs> oh, you wait till later. Anyway, uh, Jay Fisher, how's this EP for you? Yeah, I love it. I think it's brilliant. It's um, as good as everyone's saying. Um, just thinking about the conversation before, when I got into the fall, I'd, I didn't, I'd never heard the term post-punk. I didn't know that was a thing. I'd not heard Gang of Four or, you know, Why or any of those sorts of things. I didn't know there's other things a bit like that. So I was so excited when I discovered those those other things after listening to The Fall. There's other stuff like this as well. It was incredible to me. I just thought it was totally on its own. It was nothing like, everything else oh, yeah. was like New Order. And then there was The Fall. That's how I saw things. And then you discovered there was other bands not from Manchester. <laughs> that was unbelievable. I couldn't, I couldn't believe that. I still don't quite. Yeah, but no, quite none of them were as good, though, right? No. <laughs> I just no, wanted to say, though, also around, uh, we're talking about what was happening in music around this time and looking at the bands that were maybe you'd say were similar to The Fall. Around this time, you've kind of got that burgeoning goth scene. And you would never really describe The Fall as goth. And yet, if you were to kind of list what defines a goth band, at least in the kind of idea of what they were in, what goth bands were in the eighties, you could probably tack a lot of those things onto the fall. The way oh, that the instrumentation totally. sounded, the themes, um, you know, so they were very, very goth adjacent. Yeah, I've got some comments about um, albums later on, uh, probably in the next episode, which is the first time I, I was surprised by how gothy it sounded. There was a sort of very uh, Sisters of Mercy or mission base type sound coming through, but, I, but we'll get to that a little bit more uh later um okay so we're going to move on to what many people claim or argue is the greatest um fall album also possibly one of the most controversial um which um, we're going to have to address a little bit which is hex 
induction hour sound wise and I'm, i don't know fully what was going on in their lives at that time um this seems angry and a lot angrier than previous stuff i wrote down the words full of piss and vinegar um which was the sound i was sort of getting when i when i, I got from that fliss is that was there any reason why this was seems to me to be a very angry lashing out record or was it just the way their sound was going I think, yeah, um, Marky e. Smith was definitely um, out to write an album that was against the bland and a kind of fuck you. They thought it was their last album, or at least he did. Um, <clears throat> so I've read. Anyway, do pitch in if you know more facts. Well, I, I, I mean, why, why did he think that? Do you, um, John, do you know the background to that? I think that uh, there started to become a lot of tension between Mark E. Smith and Mark Riley. Mm, okay. uh, Mark really wrote most of the music, uh, you know, Aidley. Mark Riley. Just said it by, yeah, the rest of the band. But um, Mark wanted more power. And I think it had reached the point where Mark had about as much power as there was to be had without just playing with session musicians. And that set the scene for a little bit of a showdown, which happens uh, a bit later with Mark <laughs> Riley. This is right. I think it was, it was seen as probably their last record. It was recorded in a bunch of different places, really odd places, Iceland and a movie theater and, mm -hmm. and things like that. And um, they kind of held it together for one more after that. But I think that this was the swan song of, of this era of the fall in reality. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay, Bef before we're gonna move on, I'm gonna address the, the, the massive elephant in the room with this album, because obviously we can't go through everything without uh, sort of brush things aside. This was very controversial lyrically. And by lyrically, I'm talking like first one, song one. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to repeat what was said. It, there's plenty of, of discussion of it on the internet. Um, now, I know that Marky e. Smith was trying to sort of be a bit confrontational. Mm. And I, I get that it's a comment on, to on perceived tokenism. And, you know, he's not necessarily known for his politically correct stance uh, or well, yeah, what people would refer to as PC. Um, I mean, in my opinion, at its best, it's fucking misguided. And even when I've seen him be interviewed about it, it he still hasn't seemed to address it in a sort of mea culpa type way. Although when it got re-released 20 years later, I believe they changed the lyrics. So obviously- Did they? He, yeah, yeah, apparently there was, when, when he redid, when he re- started singing the song uh, later on, that word got... Well, they don't. I mean, they very rarely went back and sang old songs. So I'd be surprised uh, if the classical was a song that they... Well, what I, was about, what I was reading a few times in a few places while I was doing this in about 2002, when they started playing it a few more times, that lyric had been changed. So obviously... Okay, it may, it may, it may have happened once. I mean, they did occasionally pluck a random song from their past and, and replay it. But it, basically, one thing with The Fall, when you went to see them live, is they'd mostly be playing stuff from the last one or two albums. They never kind of recycle the kind of greatest hits tour kind of thing. In O2, so, though, I think on. they did do the Go odd on. one, didn't they, in O2? Yeah, yeah. oh, absolutely. And around that time, they were bringing these classic songs back into yeah, it. So I'm not, uh, yeah, it's not impossible. Like you say, once just, or twice, they wouldn't do it often. Yeah, there were, there were times when occasionally they'd go back and do an old song. But I have to say, in fairness, almost every time they did that, the lyrics changed. It wasn't just with this particular song. Yeah. And strangely enough, I actually put out a fall record, a slightly known fact. Um, 
and uh, I, I actually had a conversation with with Mark about this because um, I've worked for various labels and, and major labels and publishers. And it's interesting is one label that I worked for, which I won't name, they had their urban music division, which was uh, the black music, essentially soul, modern soul, hip hop, and things like that. And then they had the other divisions, which could be anything from pop and rock to jazz, heavy metal, country music. And those two groups of people that, that worked for those divisions really never met or cooperated. And it was shocking to me to learn this uh, because there'd be times I could be sitting in a meeting room waiting for people and a bunch of black people would come in, which was fine. And they would look at me like, what is this white boy doing here? And Mark's explanation was essentially that, he, that, that um, I won't mention the phrase, but the adjective before it is obligatory. And he basically said, you know, that's just what I saw in a lot of things where, you know, there's this obligatory group of people that we have to include to sort of, you know, justify ourselves or to present this facade or to keep within the laws. And to me, I always interpreted that as a very anti-racist line that mm -hmm. he made by mocking that. Um, it's a little harder to defend that now simply because he did become a much more conservative guy with sometimes very uh, xenophobic and nationalistic views uh, as life continued. But at the time I heard that, and I remember being a little shocked at hearing it and just thinking, well, I know exactly what he's talking about. And I was a young guy then. Later, it made even more sense to me. So I think a lot of that controversy is just misguided. Um, is, does anybody know if there's any truth to the rumor that, um, is that Motown was interested in distributing them in the US? That's, and, yeah, that's uh, where that, that's why I mentioned the record label thing, yeah. because that was his comment was you go to America, and you'll see like the soul division or the, you know, the urban music division and every other division. And there's just no crossover, which is unusual because when you go back into the sixties and stuff, you know, you would, you would see more of that than you did by the eighties. The Motown story is just total BS. There's no truth <laughs> to that whatsoever. Um, it's a great story, you know. Do but... you think why they went with camera? Because cam weren't camera a metal label? Largely, they were a metal label, kind of like a they new were just wave like, of do British whatever metal. The fuck yeah, sorry, they were like, do whatever the fuck you want. We don't care. So he had quite a big, he had rain. Rough Trade wouldn't have released that song. Come on. Rough Trade wouldn't have because Rough Trade, for all of its, you know, wonderful moments and, and uh, support of really great bands, they were very conservatives. And I, and I have several bands, the Nightingales, uh, Blue Orchids, um, there's a couple of others. Of bands on my label were on Rough Trade, and they'll all Stuart Mock some from the Gisting Marble Jones, and they'll all tell you that the aggravating thing about the label is you would go in there to ask for something. This is Rough Trade I'm talking about, and the way the label operated was everyone that worked there had a say in every decision, and that goes from like the floor sweepers to the guys that controlled the stock to mm -hmm. you know the retail clerks and you couldn't get anything done because the general rule there was if one person objected, they wouldn't do it. Um, right. Both the Blue Orchids and the Gist, um, both of the guys behind those bands are, are quite you know, feminist in their views, but both of them had single sleeves rejected because they were perceived as being sexist. Mm -hmm. And when the Pixies years later put out, what was it? Uh, oh God, yeah. Was it Surfer Rosa or was mm -hmm. it the EP? Yes, Surfer Rosa. They, and they yeah. had a kind of an artsy, Bauhaus photo that had an, uh, an attractive nude woman on the cover. And there were like 20 people at Rough Trade that walked out. Wow. Camera was probably a, a, a different place, but camera was also 
a symbolic label. Yeah, that you I, have money I think that's with. why it yeah. sounds quite bad, right? Because it's not you. It sounds quite bad because on the vinyl, they, it's a 60 minute record. Yeah, it's about fifty percent yeah. longer than it should be. Um, the actual there are remastered CDs and stuff where it actually sounds pretty good, but the sure. vinyl is horrible. Um, okay. So going back to the music for a second, um, Fliss, um, this album musically, um, yeah. where's what's the band doing for you at this point? Um, are they? I mean, obviously they're angrier, uh, etc. They think it's maybe think it's their swan song. But why does this album stand up as so many people's favourites? Well, I can only speak for myself, and I'm assuming maybe other people will have that same view, but it's the unusual compositions for me. Um, the, the rawness, and I know Marky Smith, it was, he's always quoted as saying, it could be me and my nan on bongos or whatever it is. But this sounds like a group, and it is a group. And I always think that about the four anywhere. I don't think it could be a load of session musicians yeah. and Marky Smith. It's it a shouldn't be. That. It's basically it's, bullshit, isn't it? Yeah, it's total bullshit. It's the band make it, and it's every person has something different to bring to it. And I feel like this album really represents each member individually. The drums are amazing on this album. I love the drums. So inspirational all the roles and cowbells and all that love it again going back to cowbell which is something i totally didn't oh, I love cowbell, so <laughs> also this album does have the weirdest pronunci pronunciation of the word nazi that i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> which did get stuck in my head and, and i found myself singing it as i was walking around the kitchen which was probably not what i thought i'd be doing i feel um, like, like i did say this in my intro but i don't think you can listen to this in the background doing anything. It's really yeah. just, you have to sit with it. I mean, crack a few tinnies and it's, it brings you in, it draws you in. It's really dense. Mm. Um, John Fisher, is this, how is this, is this up there in the top of his, the canon for you? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I'd probably put it up there. There's a few on there really that would be the, the pinnacles. It's one of this for me. But you know, it's just after quite, yeah, it's just, the last like, two were very pinnacally for me as well. I suppose. <laughs> I mean, pinnacally the records, EP. yeah, yeah. But the, I mean, I think it's in the Facebook groups and things. They, they love having their polls, and they they keep having like you know which is the best four record polls, and this wins every single time. Um, so even though I don't know if I'd call it my favorite full record, but um, I, I don't know if that's just a typical full contrarian full fan contrarian thing to say because the stats bear it out that the fans seem to like this one the most well wasn't um, this when the surge in popularity happened though mm. as well so maybe yeah, the full fans this is there was it yeah, a lot maybe. of people's into i don't know because maybe for people who were following them you know in real time i mean i came you know i came to the fall in the early 90s yeah and then worked backwards to discover these records um okay so so this was 82 and also in 82 uh, came Room to Live. Mm -hmm. um, Nick, I'm going to throw this up straight up at you as you, you did the introduction. What's going on? First of all, uh, do we have the same lineup? Pretty I'm much. Yeah. No, in fact, I think it's uh, no, yes and no. So it kind of started with the same lineup, but this is the sort of time that Mark Riley was fired from the band. So he only appears on, uh, I think, a few records on, a few tracks on the album, but also, um, I think, Mark E. Smith 
was kind of doing a lot of quite divisive things here with just inviting different people to the studio on different days. So there are some tracks on the album, I think are just Mark E. Smith and Carl Burns playing together, for example. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd one, this one, but I still feel, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's maybe one that's more for the fans. If you really love the fall there, they are still, you know, Mark e. Smith is still really spitting out these amazing lyrics. So it's got all that going on. But song for song, it doesn't really have anything that, for me, stands up to their best work from that period. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to agree with you. I mean, this, I, I was starting to get into them mm-hmm. as much as much as I have. Don't get overly excited, Nick. And I know, it's, I know this has been a year-long project for you, and I'm, 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 I've warmed to to what I didn't think I'd warm to. But uh, this album, I just, this one did just sort of disappear. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's fair enough, though. I think. Um, I mean, it was. Yeah, the, the feeling was that it was kind of rushed. And maybe, maybe it was that thing, you know, if they felt that uh, Hex Induction Hour was the last record and then Mark e. Smith thought, well, we've got a chance to do another album here. And he just kind of pushed and pushed and pushed to get something else out. Um, you know, and this, again, I mean, uh, John mentioned about, I think, was it Dragnet? You described as their only record you just say was transitional. But this, this record is sort of comes right before, I think, what would be the beginning of another seismic change in how the fall were and how they sounded. But, you know, they still sound like, the old fall. I was going to say that, yeah, this I think is the end of the line, really. And and um, it was after this record that Mark, for the next few records, really said he had not much, I mean, to, to his friends and people that knew him, he didn't really have much left to say. And really from this point on to me, whether you like the records that follow or not, this was Marky e. Smith deciding that uh, he was creatively bankrupt and just mm. trying to do what he could do to keep it going. This has no songs on it, really. There's a couple of things like, um, oh, what's I'm trying to think of something that's on it. Joker hysterical face. Okay, it's got this, I think a big Mark Riley riff. It's not one of the better songs there, but a lot of this stuff, I can remember it all because I used to play the record loads of times, but very rarely do I go back this to this and give it a listen. I think yeah. it's just the end of the line really for the fall. After that, the follower reincarnated uh, into something quite different. Mm-hmm. That is probably a perfect place to end part one, um, where we will come back in the next part to see what what Phoenix rose from the ashes. So we will be returning in the next pod, uh, where you will hear significantly more of John Fisher um, and also everybody else Hopefully. who's here. Um, Jay Fisher, thank you very much. Cheers. Uh, John Henderson, thank you very much. Thank you. Bliss Kitson, thank you very much. Thank you. Nick. Cheers. All right, catch you later. I often find that some of the best conversations happen immediately after we stop recording, or just before we start. Something to do with being off mic, I suspect. Anyway, after we recorded this episode, I asked Fliss about something she'd said that had been troubling me, about getting abuse off fall fans in online forums due to the perception that she didn't know enough about the band. Partway through her answer, I started recording again, so we were able to salvage part of the conversation. With Fliss's permission, we're including it here, because I think it's important that you hear this. And by the way, 
If you are one of those fans who thinks this is appropriate behaviour, this episode is not for you. We've set off on this journey now. There can be no going back, so allow me just to say thank you to all our guests. We had Fliss Kitson of The Nightingales, John Henderson of Tiny Global Productions, and our own Jonathan Fisher, creator of the Temporary Fandoms theme music. Thank you, you are all wonderful, and I'm endlessly grateful to you for your participation. Thank you also to Ewan for taking part in these episodes, despite his obvious antipathy towards Marky e. Smith, but also for his efforts editing it all together, a task I know is making him particularly grumpy this week for various tedious technical reasons. Cheers, Ewan. Join us again soon for part two of our six-episode exploration of the Falls discography. You know where to find us. I'm Nick Hilditch, and they're putting me away, but I'll be back someday. People listening to the Fall, I was like, fucking hell, I should actually, yeah, listen to that again, because I hadn't been back to these albums for ages. But I just read Paul Hanley, Hanley's book, and so I started listening to it again, so I got involved with that. And I feel like a bit of a wanker when I'm taking a photo of me with a Fall album, but it's it's but spreading the love and everyone's I, I lo- really I, I, into it. And I, I love that there's young, younger Fall fans coming in, like people who heard who got into the Fall around like the, in the last three or four albums, and they still and they love them, and then they go back, you know, because I came in at, in the '90s and there was already a lot of Fall already. I had the experience of of like going to university and meeting older. Fall fans who, when I said, "Oh yeah, I I I, I really like Code Selfish," and they were like, "What? You, you haven't heard Live at the Witch Trials?" <laughs> and I got all those records on cassette off these other Fall fans, and you yeah. Know. And so the idea that there's a right or wrong way to be a Fall fan is just total bullshit. I feel like most people aren't like that, and most people are like you and and you guys, and open to that. But um, you know, there is a real judgment of people getting into music later in life or, yeah, oh my God, you haven't heard of that. And yeah. do you even, I mean, I'm sure, you know, there might be people that listen to this and think, why the hell is she on there when she doesn't know what year that album came out? This, this, or this podcast, this podcast is not for those people. As an aside, yeah. um, just because mm-hmm. we haven't stopped recording, would you mind if we put this after the final no. credits? Okay. Because I... I, I yeah, I, I was kind of annoyed with myself. I didn't ask you about it because I just think, you know, I don't want it to be like, you know, a hagiography about like Marky e. Smith. I want kind of, we were exploring oh, fandom and I think that's an interesting aspect of it. Um, I'm hugely interested. Yeah. I, and I think I was really um, put off by it at the start because I saw my name yeah. in the full forum um, talking I was being spoken about in a bad in a bad way when I joined the Nightingales and um Darren had left and I know a lot of he was big part of that full forum um and I got a lot of shit for being this girl joining this band and and I only knew of that because I was really obsessive with looking through that forum even if even though I didn't really know much of the music at the time, because I was thought, this is fascinating that there's this world of people that are just talking about the fall all the time. Um, and then I ducked out of it after I saw, you know, yeah, yeah. shit stuff said about me, but you know, mm. I know that's just a one part of it. And, yeah, and, yeah. and being part of the hashtag Fall Friday on Twitter, which does sound really wanky, but it's such a nice community and I feel really welcome into it because, um, yeah, I do love loads of the music and I'd like to talk about it too. 
Cool. Yeah, we'll we'll put this bit on after the. Yeah, sorry, because I, I, yeah, I, I suppose because it wasn't related specifically to an album was why I didn't, yeah, I didn't go there. But I just felt like it was a thing we should talk about. Um, Nick, in your yeah. outro, if you could you re-record it and just say stay with. I haven't done it yet, but yeah, we can. Yeah, but, so if you could just mention that, and then we'll yeah. just add, add add sort of unedited thirty like two minutes onto the end. Okay, it'd be quite nice. Because uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, there is that thing of some bands, a lot of bands, to be honest, but the the toxic fandom. Yeah. It can be quite ooh, at times, yeah. It's like yeah. a bit of a boys' club vibe as well with these bands, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Middle-aged, aging boys' club kind of vibe. That's and didn't Marky Smith actually say, yeah, the board of league-headed gentlemen? League of bald-headed men. The league of bald-headed men. The look-back balls. And he hated yeah. all that as well, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, absolutely. He'd hate what we're doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But but we're doing it anyway. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm the biggest look back actually. Yeah, yeah. Temporary fandoms so, look back bores through and through. Sorry about that's that. Terrible. There's nothing wrong with that though. But yeah. there's is there's also room for you know new people, isn't there? But it's the thing you were saying about sorry about about like people saying, oh, I can't believe you haven't heard this, you haven't heard that. Like, there isn't time to have heard everything. And if you want to hear it, it's out there. You you find out about it by talking to other people. And that's what I love, is that that there's tons of like great bands who I just haven't even begun to explore yet. And I think I think there always will be. I'm never going to find them all, but I'm going to keep trying. Like like Pokemon. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but it's even like, like Zoe, who, Zoe's on the next one, right? She's on the next part yeah, of yeah. it. Zoe's oh, Zoe, different. how? No. No, no, no. Different Zoe. I don't think it's uh, Zoe, you know. But then she was saying like, when she joined the Facebook group, uh, she initially thought, oh shit, it's a, it's, there's a lot of men, there's a lot of men on there. Are they going to respect my opinion? And yeah, obviously people did, but I can see what how there is a sort yeah. of oh god, I've got to break through this again. Yeah, there's a lot of the, a lot of the women in the Facebook group are kind of lurkers. They don't contribute much, which, which makes me sad a bit. 